Yesterday I was in uh, Seal Beach speaking at Leisure World, <clears throat> and the Seal Beach um, politicians, city council, have they have a uh, coyote problem. There's coyotes eating cats and dogs. And so they decided to pass a resolution to catch all the coyotes and kill them. And I'm thinking, well, this is like 2014, you know, and there's like a lot of really smart people in the world. And, and you would think they could figure out a better way to deal with the solution or to deal with the problem than killing them. And, and I found a wonderful uh, website on uh, coyotes and, and what to do if they invade your territory or what to do if you invade their territory. And, and so it's just fascinating that, that death seems to be the easy way out for a lot of people with a lot of problems. And right now we've got the same thing going on in the Middle East, you know. We're sort of um, bombing people. And ironically, a lot of the military weapons and machinery, we gave them. So now we're spending millions to destroy them. And I'm just going, whoa, couldn't we use that money in a better way? Couldn't we just all wake up and sort of say, hey, you know, life is so short anyway. Let's see if we can work out some solutions. But I guess not. We're going to have to wait a little bit longer. So I... Um, I'm going to give a talk that I gave uh, last week, but uh, none of you were there, so it, it, <laughs> it might work out fine. And um, this is something I thought about that I wrote down. Uh, I have found it next to impossible to have an original thought with seven billion people thinking. That's a lot of folks. Facebook page, wonderful comment from a fellow who was concerned about me. He said, Mr. Kusla, I've listened to about all your podcasts, and I really like them. And I just want to know about a trend that I've noticed. It is that you are repeating themes and ideas over and over. If you continue this trend, I will still listen to your podcasts. All I'm saying is that you might want to broaden your horizons as far as your podcast discussions are concerned. Good luck. <laughs> now, this was a perfect one for me to respond to, so this was my response. Yes, I think your observation is correct. In the 45 years that the Buddha gave Dharma talks, he only spoke about two things, why we suffer and how to end suffering. I'm doing my best to stay on message. <laughs> so it's interesting in giving a lot of Dharma talks, and as a matter of fact, next month, I was invited by the Glendale Rotary Club to give a talk, to be their guest speaker. And I just love this, because the irony is they're inviting somebody who hasn't worked in 20 years <laughs> to give a talk <laughs> on Buddhism, of all things. They want to find out about Buddhism. That's really a good thing, of course. Uh, but I don't know if it'll make them more money. 
you know, might give them peace and happiness instead, which could be even better. So I was thinking the other day about a Zen master. And if you've ever met those Zen master guys, you know, they're really serious and sort of aloof and detached. You never quite know what they're thinking about. You're hoping they're not thinking and they've reached that level. And so if you go on a Zen retreat, oftentimes there's a chance to do interviews. And so this is your opportunity to come into direct contact with the master. And you sit in front of him. And he'll ask you questions or you'll just tell him how you're thinking. So I've done this a couple times. It's really intimidating. And I never have any really good questions, you know? And I never have any answers. And so I always feel like it could have been better. And why do I keep doing it? So here, so imagine that with that attitude going into the Zen master. And, and you sit down and the Zen master says, who are you? This is not an easy question to answer. Because you can go to a lot of different places. So I start with the best answer I could come up with. I am human. And I'm happy about being human because it's rare with all the rebirth that occurs over and over again that I made it to the human realm. And then he would look at me and say, but who are you? You see, they never just stop. (laughs) And then I would say, well, I'm a guy. And I'm really lucky that I have a receding hairline and hair on my back. (laughs) And in, in being a guy, you know, you think, well, it's probably as good a birth as any. You don't put too much emphasis on it. You just feel better being human than being a guy. But that's not good enough. Well, who are you, he says. I said, well, I'm the result of all my karma. Everything I've thought about, said, and done has had consequences. And, and I am a result of that. And some days, all those consequences turn out to be pretty darn good. And life seems wonderful. And other days, all those consequences don't seem quite as good. And life seems sort of tragic and a lot of work. And he goes, who are you? You see, that's how they are. And I'd say, well, I am my six sense doors. I am sight and consciousness. See, in Buddhism, each sense door has its own consciousness. It's never simple. So I am sight, and I have sight consciousness. I am hearing, and I have hearing consciousness. I am smelling, and I have smelling consciousness. I am tasting, and I have tasting consciousness. I feel, and I have feeling consciousness. And I think, and I have thinking consciousness. And what I've come to understand about those six sense doors is they're really limited that I'll never see as well as a hawk, I'll never hear as well as a dog, I'll never smell as good as I used to. And, and I just look at all this stuff and I'm going, wow, I am so limited in the way I experience the world because I'm human. But then I would have to say all creatures are limited in the, experience, in the way they experience the world and that's what makes them who they are. 
And yet, I have to make a lot of really difficult and big decisions based on limited information. And I thought to myself the other day, it takes great courage to live a life when you don't know what you're doing. Every day, you're just sort of hoping for the best. And even if in one moment, you did get all the information necessary for a correct choice or decision, in the very next moment, because of change and impermanence, it would all be different. So you would never have the opportunity, while you're human, while you're alive, to make the best choice ever. It's always a limited choice. Limited on how you're perceiving it, also limited on how you're thinking about it. A fellow asked me the other day, what's the difference between judgment and discernment? Now, you know, this is, I, I never really thought about it very much. And it always irritates me when people ask me questions I don't know the answer to. But only a fool knows the answer to everything. So uh, I thought about it, and I thought about it. And I said, well, judgment seems to be filled with emotion and a limited perspective. And discernment seems to be simply the way it's experienced, without the judgment. And, and I thought to myself, most of the stuff I think about has judgment connected to it. And judgment may not be a bad thing, because it, it's there to keep us alive. You know, it's based on survival. So if I'm going to jump off a cliff, and I have a parachute, my judgment is that maybe I shouldn't. Because the parachute may not open, and I'll just die at the bottom of the cliff. But there are a lot of people who have a different judgment about it and say, it'll be fun to jump off the cliff with a parachute. And then they're dead at the bottom. <laughs> so judgment can be useful in staying alive. Judgment can be useful in certain situations, but it's always based on personal prejudice, if you will. It's always based on how you think it should be. And I find, as I get older, I am more and more rigid in the way I think things should be. And I'm not quite sure why that's the case, but when I look at old people, they seem to be rigid as well. So we have a lot of company after a certain age of this sort of rigid thinking that back in the good old days, you know, and I've gone there, but I've also realized they weren't quite as good as I remember them because I've been editing them for 20 years. So it, it's, it's just how do I, you know, uh, for example, back in the old days, people thought the world was flat. And, and it was just assumed that the world was flat. And then somebody says, no, no, it's round. Yeah, I, I have proof. I have this like telescope, or I have this theory, or I have this calculation, and I can prove that the world is round. So I thought to myself, at my current age, would I have been one of those rounders or one of those flatlanders? Would I have thought, okay, it must be correct, because science says it's so. So now, after having thought my entire life that it was flat, now it's just round. Is there a paradigm clash 
is there an issue with the old knowledge and the new knowledge? You know? And for me, there always is. It's never an easy transition to the new. I posted something yesterday on Facebook saying, every choice I've made has claw marks on the back. Trying to hold on to it as long as I can without letting it go. Because I have created a comfortable idea of how the world is. But it's a fabrication. It's an illusion. It's not that way, and it never has been, and it never will be. But somehow I've deluded myself into thinking, ah, isn't it wonderful? Like Christmas. I hate Christmas. People are so tense and trying so hard to have a good time. And I don't want to try really hard to have a good time. I just want to have time. I'm getting simple. So I look at this stuff and I'm going, wow, I'm doing it to myself. I saw the other day on the news. They said, you know, most Americans fear ISIS. And I'm thinking, well, until a couple months ago, we didn't know what the heck that was other than maybe an Egyptian god of some sort. So why would we fear it? And I thought to myself, the news, the media, they have created this fear and anxiety in us. And they interviewed somebody who was fighting ISIS, a a Kurd military guy. He says, it's going to take probably 10 years, but we're going to do it. I'm thinking, I'll be dead by then. It'll still be going on and I'm going to die. And I'm going, couldn't we just do something else? So I've decided not to watch the news for a while. You know, or I go in halfway through the news after the international news is over and I get to the local news. Who's been killed? Who's been run over? What water pipe broke? (laughs) You know, it's just more pleasant that way. (laughs) So all this stuff gets in your head and now we have to try to have a life with all this stuff in your head. So the Zen master says, but who are you? And I would say, well, I'm the five aggregates. The Buddha talked about that. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. I have form, that's the physical aspect, and then four aspects are conscious. So I have consciousness, sensation, perception, and volition. And it goes like this. We have a rudimentary consciousness that arises which allows us to think and perceive and name and act. It's just basic consciousness. It's the kind of consciousness that doesn't go away unless you have an operation. So at night we have a consciousness, during the day we have a consciousness, and all this stuff takes place because of that very basic rudimentary consciousness. So say I'm really thirsty. A couple weeks ago, I was really thirsty. It's like 90 degrees. You know, anybody who argues against global warming, I want to talk to him personally. In my room, it was 95 degrees. I am sitting there sweating at my computer, trying to think. But what happens if it gets too hot or too cold, the brain shuts down to keep the major organs alive. So I'm staring blankly at the screen, hoping for something to arise, and all that arose was consciousness. But there was nothing on consciousness. So I'm looking at the water bottle, and it is the form, and the form of my eye 
connects to the form of the water bottle and my rudimentary consciousness is there so the next thing occurs and it is sensation. The sensation will be either a good sensation, a bad sensation, or a neutral sensation. In this case, I was thirsty, about to die, it was a good sensation. Now, in order to use the water bottle, I had to know it was a water bottle. So all the years I went to school, all the books I've read, all the TV I've watched, helped me discern that it was, in fact, a water bottle, and I could name it, and because I could name it, I could use it. If you can't name it, you can't use it. If you can't name it, you don't even know it exists. So I'm lucky to have a vocabulary of at least 2,000 words. I named it. There it was. Now, I had to figure out how to use it. So we have perception, the naming quality, and then we have volition, the action quality. Thankfully, over the years, I had learned how to open a bottle, how to twist it off, take it to my lips, chug a lug, put it back, turn the cap. It had been a process that took a rather long time. Because, have you ever seen kids, now I don't have any kids, but I've seen kids in restaurants trying to use utensils, spoons, forks, knives. They are so unskilled at that. You know, they'd much rather use their hands. We all would. But we need to have culture. We need to use forks and spoons. And I must say, it drives everybody at the Vietnamese temple nuts when I ask for the fork. Because they've got to go find one. They've got to wash it. Nobody's used it in two years. <laughs> give it to me. So now, I know how to open the water bottle. I know how to bring it to my lips. And that's the volitional activity. So that's what I am. I'm one part form, four parts consciousness. What's interesting about Buddhism, and I don't know if you figured this out yet, probably so, but Buddhism says we're just like never one thing. It's, it's an illusion to think that you are independent and called something like Mary or Sam or Joe. That, that's the way they identify you. It gives you the sense of self and it gives you the sense of independence, but it gives you the greatest illusion of all, that you are somebody. And that gets into the way of everything you do and think. It does allow us to, to experience the world, though, as a human being, which is one of our greatest gifts. So what's the problem with one? I've spoken about this before, but I'll speak about it again. The problem with one is that if there's only one, everybody has to get on board. You know? And I was raised in the 60s. Question authority. Don't trust anyone over 30. I just posted this wonderful picture on my Facebook page. It's, a, it's an abandoned train station. And scrawled on the wall are the words, question everything. And right beneath it is, why? <laughs> Isn't that the perfect response? <laughs> So it is important to question everything, not to take it for granted, not to take it as truth or fact, you know, until you've proven it to yourself that that's a useful way of looking at it. So 
One talks about uniformity, in my mind, from the 60s, 1984, Brave New World. Everybody has to get in line, all the ducks in a row. It's only about one. And 6,000 years ago in the desert, they found the one God. Well, in Buddhism, they never found the one God. What they found was a hierarchy of gods, and they found the big gods, the powerful gods, and the not-so-big gods, and the not-so-powerful gods. I really like the diversity of deities, because, you know, it gives everybody a chance to have one. If there's only one God, there would be a lot of people that say, I don't want that God. What are my choices? They're going to say, there isn't any. That's it. If you don't like that God, you're going to go to hell. And I'm going, well, you know, when I was young and a Lutheran, (laughs) that was a fear that I had. You know, that because I couldn't buy into the whole package, that I was on my way out. I was going to be always on the sidelines, all my brothers and sisters. I'd probably have to marry an atheist or something. And I would just have a terrible life, and I'd die and end up in hell. And then I found Buddhism. And I realized that, wow, you know, it really matters what I think, say, and do, karma, because that determines where I go after I die. Not what I believe in, not what I have faith in, but what I do. The activity itself has so much value and importance. So every time somebody says, this is the one, I just get this little twinge in my back. The one. Like, this is the best one? Really? I've seen better ones. No, this is the best one. So in Buddhism, we can say, well, we don't have to go with the one. We can go with the many, because the many are always connected, which creates the illusion of one, but it also, more importantly, creates unity. So that means when I do my interreligious work, I've got something happening next month, I'll be an interreligious person with other people representing their traditions. I don't have to be on their team because all our teams are connected. And I will listen carefully and appreciate and value the differences, not just the similarities. I like differences too. And realizing that the differences are there because not everybody is the same. We all need different stuff to make it happen for us, to have some kind of faith or devotion or confidence, or insight. We need different stuff to make our personal life work. And one is just, has never worked for me. So, we are always more than one, according to Buddhism. We are a variety of conditions that have come together in this moment. I was lucky enough to have my two cups of coffee this morning. That was a condition necessary for my talk. I had water and juice. That was a condition necessary for my kidneys. I haven't had food yet. That's probably good. My pants fit better because of it. And it goes on and on and on. All these conditions necessary for my existence, for my life. You take too many of these conditions away, I disappear too. And so how can I say I live independently? How can I say I exist apart from everything? How can I ever stand on a platform and say, look at me, 
Because every time you look at me, you see everybody. And every time I look at you, I see everybody. And I realize the ripple effects of every choice I make, every sound that comes out of my mouth, and every action that comes out of my body has ripple effects through the entire universe. So I need to be really clear and I need to be really kind before I open my mouth or engage in activity because it will affect everyone and everything, which is another reason we shouldn't kill coyotes. So the Zen master looks at me and says, but really, really, come on, you've given me conventional answers. These are all relative. I know that's what most people would say. But you've been meditating for a while, and you've read the Dharma, and and I really want to hear from you who you are. So now, now I'm up against the wall. I haven't impressed this guy a bit. So I say to him, I'm pulling out the, the ace now. I say to him, I am full of emptiness. Oh, his eyes get big. I can tell he likes that answer. He said, emptiness, is that like nothing? I said, oh, no, no, it's not like nothing at all. It's, it's empty. It's, it's empty. And he says, but how can you be empty? I said to him, I'm empty of independent existence. Ooh, shunyata? Yes, shunyata. All things exist because of emptiness. All things are possible because of emptiness. All things are possible because... It never ends, because it never starts, because it's always in a process. And he says, tell me more. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have to reach deep now to find some words, because it's hard to talk about nothing (laughs) and make it understood. Well, I said, in the conventional sense, you're absolutely right. And if I'm driving my car and I get pulled over and they want to see my license, you know, I really need to be that guy in the license. Now, I know intellectually, I know intuitively that I'm not that guy. But I don't want to go there with this police officer. I don't want to rock his world. I just want him to do his job, give me the ticket, and I get on my way. So I need to be that guy who broke the law. But really, there wasn't any God. There was the five aggregates. There was the six cent stores, on and on and on, who somehow got into a car and decided to drive it. But if I was going to say emptiness was driving the car, I could say it was because I had become, become rather intuitive about it. That when I first started to drive, I don't know if you all remember when you first started to drive, but I got to drive a stick shift, and we had a clutch, and we had a brake, and we had the, and I had to think about everything I did. Nothing came easily, so I had to push the clutch. I had to da da da, and and the car would start. And I had to push the clutch, and and there's a whole rhythm thing. And after a while, it becomes more intuitive, and now you can change the radio station and talk to the person next to you, and push in the clutch and shift. All at the same time. It's a miracle. And I'm, so I'm driving and I'm thinking, wow, this is really cool. And then I'm thinking about what I need to do. So my mind goes into the future about how I'm going to find a parking place, what I'm going to do when I get there, what I need to do. And then I think about the past and all the things. And I'm going, wow, past and future, present moment, no one is there. Who's doing it? 
being nobody, going nowhere, and then you die. And then we're reborn again to do it again. To be somebody who turns out to be nobody, to do something that turns out to be not, and then you die again and you continue. The world can be a pretty empty place. It doesn't have much reason or rhyme to it unless you give it to it. You're in charge. What does your world mean to you? How do you see it? What is your experience? And that's the value you give to your life and your world. But I think inherently it lacks all of that. I think it's just a big process of impermanence. They had the new cosmos on TV. I don't have the time to watch it, so I watched it on Amazon Prime. It was so cool. I love to watch the Big Bang Theory. Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but when it's animated, it is fun to look at. (laughs) You know, it is just amazing. And, And I thought to myself, as I watched that particular episode, that this is what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about impermanence. That this was the entire basis for life, this big explosion that kept expanding into the world that was always changing, that life cannot exist without change. That we need that impermanence. But the impermanence drives us nuts because we don't know what's going to happen next. We think we do. We can plan for it. But none of us really know. And it never stops in the same way we never stop. Wouldn't it be nice in your life if you had gotten to that place where you were just the way you wanted to be and then you could put on the brakes and just stay there? You know, And then you'd be just like perfect all the time. But as soon as you get to a place you think is perfect, it changes. And you have to become something else. And you have to become something else. And the world is flat. And the world is round. And you have to become something else. And it's really frustrating. It doesn't lead to a sense of comfort and security. It leads rather to a little bit of discomfort and insecurity. Because it just is never going to stop. So, in being empty of independent existence, we sometimes can look at our thoughts and our judgments as simply being our response to the impermanence and the emptiness of our life. They don't hold much value to anybody but ourselves, generally speaking. Some people want to hear our opinion, but some people want to hear our opinion So they can say, I don't buy it. I think you're wrong. And some people would say, I think you're right. But in the big scheme of things, is it either right or wrong, or simply just an opinion based on a bunch of stuff you'll never fully understand that's always changing? Probably that's what it is. So again, great courage to be nobody great courage to always be in a constant state of change and flux and never achieve anything you've ever dreamed of because as soon as you think you're there, it becomes something else. Wow. Now the Zen master looks at you and says, good. You've made progress. And then you leave. 
and you go, is that it? Is that what this retreat's about? Is that what 20 years is about? Is that what this whole thing is about? No. This whole thing is about having the wisdom and insight to see the true nature and having compassion and kindness to let it happen. And if you don't like what's happening, if you don't like the fact that they're killing coyotes, then you become one of the conditions necessary for the change. But individually, you will never ever change anything because it's already changing. So you need to be the rudder. You need to sort of shape the change, direct the change in a way that, according to Buddhism, would lead to less suffering, not more suffering. I think that's good. I think that's like a lot of stuff. Does anybody have any questions or comments on what I've said? (laughs) Anybody like to engage? What do you think? You're all just sitting there thinking? Is emptiness going to manifest? Yes? Okay. Question, yes? Emptiness and nothing. Right. Yeah, what's the difference? Well, yeah, I was trying, just trying to figure that out. It's like, what, you know, what is, how, how does emptiness have form, or what form do you give her? How do I, how do I identify with the emptiness? Because I always, even when you spoke about it, it was just a very positive thing. When I feel like I'm inside, I feel like it's a negative thing. So it's like, how, yeah, how do I have that perception that emptiness can be? Okay. Uh, Emptiness is good in the sense that you've got nothing to defend. You know, if somebody doesn't like you, you say, but what don't you like? The six sense doors? The five aggregates? The 32 parts of the body? What is it exactly? And then they can give you an answer in sort of a relative way. Well, I don't like the way you dress. I hate your shoes. And then you'd say to them, well, what's a shoe? What's the true nature of a shoe? (laughs) Emptiness. Empty of independent existence. A shoe also is conditional. If you take the sole off a shoe, it becomes something else. If you take the top off a shoe, it might become a sandal. So we can go on and on and on. So, So emptiness allows us to be anything we want to be because we're not limited by what we think or who we think we are. Yes, this is the tough part, especially if you have a family, because your family will tell you exactly who you are. At least mine does. And, and I allow them that privilege. They can define me in any way they want, and then I leave and have a cup of coffee. But it makes them happy to know who I am. And, and that would be the thing. Now, the difference between nothing and emptiness is this. Emptiness is very specific in Buddhism. It's, it's not an empty glass or an empty pocket. It's empty of independent existence. That we're always interconnected and interdependent with everything. 
Now that took me a long time to be able to say and even a longer time to be able to think about. But being conditional, the ground of being is impermanence. We never ever stay who we are any longer than a moment. And then you might say, well, how many moments in a minute? And I would say as many as you want. So we have a causal connection with all the people we used to be because we have a memory. But now I find as I get older, it is fascinating because I'm losing that causal connection with who I used to be. So people will come up to me and say, I knew you back in 1981, and I haven't got a clue who they are. I, they, they don't look familiar. Of course, after many years, none of us look like we used to. And, and she said a few words to give me a context where we met. It still didn't click. So did I feel bad about that? I said to myself, this is a chance to meet her again for the first time. I said, how are you? Without any old baggage, it was a delightful conversation we had because we were two people coming together now rather than being dependent on who we used to be. And so empty of independent existence, that emptiness aspect gives us a chance to be really skillful in a lot of different ways that most people haven't thought about yet. You know? I hope that was helpful. Okay. Hey. Hey, Ricky. Hi, how are you? I was listening to NPR radio a couple days ago, and I forgot exactly what the program was, but the moderator said, you know, he's talking about Christianity and Buddhism. He says, one is, you can't, they can't both be true. Uh, I'm a Buddhist and I know I believe Buddhism is true. Does that mean that Christianity is false? Ah, good question. No, they're both true. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is the best part about Buddhism. He was a Christian. <laughs> the, he doesn't know they can both be true. You, you know, you really have to figure out what truth is. You know, there is a relative truth that's oftentimes is true because of consensus. In the same way, we had the flat world and the round world, and more people believed that the world was flat. So we'd have to say the majority chose to believe the truth was the world is flat. Well, but it was true. And then they said, well, you know, now we understand it's it's not true that the world is flat. It's true that the world is round. But as long as 10 people thought it was round and the rest thought it was flat, it was still going to be flat. That was the truth. Then slowly, gradually, it became true because everybody got on the bandwagon that the world was round. The truth in 1978 was the speed limit was 55. That's the truth. And you can go out today and look for all those signs that say 55 and they're all gone. That's a man-made truth. That's a law. Truth is still truth. 
Well, it depends. So now, it was true in 1978, it's no longer true in 2014. We have a system of laws to help us define what is right and what is wrong, but not necessarily what is true. If you think it is true, it becomes your truth. Relative truth is intellectual and dualistic. It'll never be ultimately true. It'll always be relatively true. So then we'd have to say, well, is God the ultimate truth? Not if God can be spoken or thought about. It becomes a relative truth. If you've had an experience of God, an epiphany, if you will, that's beyond your vocabulary, and you can't share it with anybody, that could be true. But we'll never know because you can't talk about it. In, in, in Buddhism, it really allows you to say there's a relative truth and an ultimate truth. So what is the ultimate truth in Buddhism that can be talked about and can be experienced? That would be all things are interconnected and interdependent. That is an ultimate truth perspective in Buddhism. You could probably find that same truth in quantum physics. You may be able to find the same truth in Christianity, but they would call it something else. They would label it differently because they were using a different paradigm to experience and relate the truth to others. So I am of the firm conviction that Buddhism and Christianity are both true. And we get to pick our truth. What's true to us? So what did the Buddha say in the Kalama Sutta? He said, don't believe it because it's true. Don't believe it because the elders tell you it's so. Don't believe it because it's on the internet. Well, maybe he didn't say that. <laughs> but believe it because in your own life you have experienced it to be true. It's your experience. And the thing I like about Buddhism is the fact that it is not a theory. The Buddha didn't sit down and think this stuff up. What he did is he actively pursued his freedom from suffering, and he is sharing with us what he experienced. And because of that, our only reference can be our own personal practice to see if he said the truth, to see if he spoke the truth. So we can prove it that way. In Christianity, it's a little different to prove the truth. It doesn't necessarily come out of your personal experience. It comes out of your faith and devotion, which is a different way of going about it. But truth, uh, I always love it when people say there's only one truth. You remember what I said about the one? Yeah. <laughs> I always frown when, that, when I hear that. And I think there are multiple truths because there are multiple ways of experiencing everything. There's never just one way. So that's what I would say, Hideki. Thanks for the question. Anybody else? Yes, hi. Because it creates suffering for you? Yes. And often the things that I do in my life that I care about and act towards family issues or whatever it may be, bring people 
Yeah, so why do it? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It is tough. It is tough. Uh, I was feeding the cats today, and I cut my finger on the cat can, the cat food can. And it's just bleeding, and I'm going, man, you know, just to feed the cats, I'm cutting my fingers. They didn't care. They ate the food anyway. <laughs> so I, it is really hard. And, and what they say about the bodhisattva ideal, the bodhisattva ideal in Mahayana Buddhism is to be of service. And you take a vow to be of service to all sentient beings, to everybody. Now, what they say in being of service is it's never an easy path to take. And you may not suffer less at all. You may suffer more. So you need to have the correct mind state. The mind state of a bodhisattva is, if they decide to cut off my leg as I do my service, I should be thankful that I have another leg. If they decide to cut off both legs, I should be thankful I have two arms. If they start cutting off my arms, I should be thankful I have a head. If they cut off my head, I should be thankful they used a sharp knife. That is a radical way of looking at life. And most people are not going to go there because it only creates more suffering rather than less suffering. For me, it's always confirmed the first noble truth that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Whether you do nothing or try to do something, it doesn't turn out to end your suffering. It doesn't turn out sometimes to even reduce your suffering. And, and so in following the teachings of the Buddha, then you go to the next thing. Well, I have a desire to help people. And the Buddha said, every desire you have ultimately leads to suffering. Even the good ones lead to suffering. So the idea is to help people without having a desire to help them. And how the heck do you do that? How do you actively help anybody without having a desire to help them? How do you get up in the morning without having a desire to get up? I don't know. I can't tell you how to do that. But sometimes things happen without a whole lot of desire behind them. It's just a response to the situation before you get a chance to stop and analyze it. Um, Think of it this way if you're suffering and still doing it, that you're gaining great merit. And this merit is going into your karma account. And when you die, you can trade it in for a good rebirth. (laughs) Thank you for the question. Let's do a little loving kindness and we'll call it a Sunday. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May I always find fulfillment. May I also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, 
and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief.